All righty, folks, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew this morning. Well, we're actually going to be all over the place this morning. We're just going to start in Matthew. How about that? Um, but Matthew chapter 7. And the title of the message this morning, of course, is the genuine article. The genuine article. You might have used, heard that term used before. And, uh, and what it means is simply this. It means a person or a thing considered to be authentic and an excellent example of their kind. Okay? It's a person or thing considered to be an authentic and excellent example of their kind. I heard a story one time several years ago in Long Beach, California. A fellow went into a fried chicken place and bought a couple chicken dinners. Well, he bought it for himself and his date one late afternoon. And the young woman at the counter inadvertently accidentally gave him the proceeds from the day that had just happened. So it was a whole bag of money he got instead of chicken dinners. Now, how many would love to go on a picnic and open up and find a bunch of money? Well, after driving to their picnic site, the two of them sat down to open the meal and enjoy some chicken together. They discovered a whole lot more than chicken. It was over $800 worth of money. But, he, but this man was a little unusual compared to people these days. He quickly put the money back in the bag. They got back into the car and drove all the way back. Mr. Clean got out, walked in, and became an instant hero. Of course, by then, the manager was frantic, and the guy with the bag of money looked at the manager in the eye and said, I want you to know I came by to get a couple of chicken dinners and wound up with all this money here. Well, the manager was thrilled. He says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call the newspaper, and I'm going to get your picture put in the local paper that you are the most honest man I have ever heard of. Of course, quickly the man says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And then he leaned closer and he whispered into the manager's ear and he says, You see, the woman I'm with is not my wife. She's uh, somebody else's wife. You know, Charles Swindoll shared that story one time about being, being who you really are and having a, a life of integrity. You know, folks, none of us likes getting something that's fake, do we? When you pay for something, or if somebody gives you a gift and they tell you it's the real deal, you want it to be the real thing, right? Let me ask you ladies out here this morning. How many are married here this morning? How many have a ring? How many of you, your husband, when he gave it to you, said this is a diamond ring? Okay. That's okay if it's not, as long as he was honest with you. All right? Now, what if you went to the jeweler and you found out it was cubic zirconia? Wait a minute, he lied, he gave me fake diamond. Now, like I said, if, if in the beginning he said, that's, hey, this is not a real diamond, that's okay. But if, he give, but, it, but if he gives you one and says it's that, and then it's not, it's kind of disappointing, isn't it? It kind of breaks the heart. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean to be the genuine article when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ? We've got a lot of fakes out there, folks. More than we need. What is the number one excuse people say they don't want to go to church anymore that are lost that you run into? What's their number one excuse, you remember? Hypocrites, right? I ain't going to church with a bunch of hypocrites over there. Well, you know what? Sometimes we can all be hypocritical, can't we? But you know what? Some, some people just fit the mold perfectly, don't they? But you know, here's what I say to those folks. I say, you can't have a fake unless you have something real to compare it to. You can't call it false if you don't have something that's true. So what you got to do is you got to go find that church that has authentic believers. As many as you can find. But get ready, you're going to find some fake ones. You're going to find those that, the, that, the, that, that you're going to call hypocrites. Of course, I had one gentleman get upset with me one day. I told him, I said, he told me that. And I said, well, sir, let me ask you a question. Where do you shop groceries at? He said, Walmart. I said, guess what? There's hypocrites in Walmart. You're going to quit shopping groceries in Walmart? It's not a good excuse to say I'm not going to go to church because of hypocrites. I read some things this week that 
I'll tell you, it alarmed me a little bit. And, and I want you to know, as I read these things, these statistics, I, don't, I want you to know that they're not foolproof, okay? You can't prove 100% that this is, these are the numbers. But some great pastors of the past, Billy Graham, J. Harold Smith, and Vance Havner, all said at some point in their ministry that they believed that 80% of the church in America, and I, I rounded that number because some said 75, one said 85, one said like 75. So I said, okay, we'll just say 80. That 80% of the church in America today is lost. According to a survey by the Barna Group, only 85 million people attend church on a regular basis. That is weekly or twice a month, considered regularly. Now, if that statistic is true, and 80% are not truly born again, but they have a false sense of assurance... That would mean that only rounded, I rounded this number to 17 million people in America are truly saved today. Now let me share this with you. The state of New York, according to the, the national census in 2019, they, uh, it was estimated that New York, state of New York had roughly 19 million people living in it. Okay? Now I want you to understand this, folks. If those statistics are true, then only the state of New York, if we did a comparison would be the only ones that would make it into eternity with Jesus Christ. The rest of America would be condemned to eternal separation from God. I'm not going to lie. I sat back in my chair and I went, wow. Wow. Now, folks, I'm not saying that into church today that 80% of you in here don't know the Lord. That's, that's, that's not what this is about, okay? I'm giving you these percentages because they were done through some, some surveys and stuff, just to give you an idea. But I want to tell you the Scripture we're going to look at this morning. Jesus scares the daylights out of me a little bit. Now that I know I'm saved, thank goodness. But when I read these verses, it scares me. For how many may be sitting in church on a Sunday morning who may die? And when they stand before God, they're going to hear these words that we're going to look at this morning. But if you added those statistics to our, our average of attendance at our church, which is roughly 130, 135, something like that, that would mean that only 26 people in this room are born again this morning. The rest are lost. Now, understand, I'm not saying that this is our church, okay? So don't go out and say, Pastor Kent said I was lost. <laughs> Let me go ahead and say this. I can't look into your heart. No man can look into your heart. Only God knows whether you're truly born again or not. And you. And we're going to look at that this morning. What it means to be the genuine article. If you have your Bibles uh, open to Matthew chapter 7, would you stand with me this morning as we read God's Word and honor to it this morning. And we're going to begin in verse 13 and verse 14. And then we're going to slip down to verses 21 through 23. And Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these things. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You may be seated. I want to read this section to you again, but I'm going to read it differently. I have a, a wonderful study book that I use a lot of times that deals with Greek word studies, and, and it's by a guy by the name of Wiest. Uh, you should say Wiest because it's W, it's a German name. But he took these verses and he wrote it as best he could in the same verb tense as the Greek and with what the Greek meaning of the word means. And here's what he came up with. Verses 13 and 14 would sound something like this. Enter through the narrow gate, because broad is the gate and spacious is the road, the one that leads away to ruin and everlasting misery. And many there are who are constantly entering through it. Listen to that. 
Many there are who are constantly entering through it. Because narrow is the gate and compressed is the road, the one which leads away into life. And few there are who are finding it. In verse 21 and 23, he says, Not everyone who keeps on saying to me, listen, keeps on saying, it's not, not just not everyone who says to me, but keeps on saying to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who keeps on doing that which my Father who is in heaven has determined shall be done. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name prophesy and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles which demonstrated the power of God? And then I will declare in a public announcement to them, I never came to know you experientially because going away, be going away from me, you who are working the lawlessness. You see, I love that verse 23, the way he said that. Let me, let me read that section one more time. I never came to know you experientially. You see, there's a difference, folks, this morning on knowing God here and knowing Him here. We can have facts about God up here, but do you know Him personally, intimately? I mean... Like you would know your best friend, your spouse. Your spouse is the best way because really our marriage relationship is to be a reflection of our relationship to God. As much as you can know your spouse, do you know God that way? And that is something that we're going to be looking at this morning. Jesus prayed this in John seventeen three. He prayed that we would know the one true God and His Son Jesus whom He had sent. Now here's a question I have for you this morning. When Jesus says, many go the broad way and few find the narrow way, how many is few? How many is many? I can tell you Jesus never told us, so I'm not going to put a number on it. Even those statistics are not accurate. But the one thing that God is telling us is that heaven... There's more than enough room, but few are going to find its way there. Few souls are going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. That breaks my heart. There was a mathematician that once looked at the, the cities of heaven's measurements, which is 1,500 miles square. And he did his best to guesstimate from the beginning of time till now, how many people have lived on planet Earth? And he was able to get some censuses, censuses once they started taking them. He was able to look at historical documents. And if his guesstimation is anywhere close, here's what he found, that every person who has ever lived on planet Earth could have one acre of land in the city of heaven. You know what that tells me? God made heaven for everybody. That's why he said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not hope so, think so, maybe so. Know so. You can know that you are a child of God. But unfortunately, according to Jesus, it will be more empty than full. So this morning, I want to take just a few moments to look at just some biblical evidences of what true salvation is and what it looks like after Salvation. If you'll just join me as we go on this journey together. The first thing I want to look at this morning is true biblical salvation. We're going to begin by looking at 1 Thessalonians 1.5. It should come up here on the screen. If you, if you got your Bible, feel free to, to, to go there. But Paul was writing to the Thessalonians and he was talking about the gospel. And this is what he said. He said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Okay? Paul is telling us here that the gospel that he preached came with a powerful moving of God's Holy Spirit. That when you come to know Jesus Christ, it is a powerful moving of God's Spirit as He reveals to you who you are and then transforms you into who you need to be. Let me go ahead and say this. Right at the very beginning, Paul says, did not come to you in word only. What that means is it's not just by simply praying a prayer. 
And this, there has been a major attack today on what is true salvation in the church. It's been watered down to nothing more than you're a sinner, say a prayer, or admit you're a sinner, say you this prayer, get baptized, and go to church. I had a friend of mine that went to a church in North Charleston, and at the end of the service, the pastor asked the congregation to stand. He said, pull out your bulletins and look on the back. There's a prayer there. He says, say this prayer with me. He says, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need you to be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I put my faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's nothing really wrong with that prayer, okay? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the prayer. What the problem was, was right after they said, if you said that prayer, you're saved today. And he missed a whole bunch of stuff in between. Church, I'm telling you this because this is what happened to me. At five years old, somebody told me, just admit you're a sinner, say a prayer. Go down the aisle, get baptized, and go to church. At ten years old, the same thing happened again, but it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I had an encounter with God that changed my life. Now, I'm not saying that 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 simple process can't be used, but there are some key elements that are a part of every salvation experience that I want to share with you from a biblical standpoint that you need to see today. And I'm not here to attack anyone's salvation. I don't want you to feel that because I cannot look into your heart. Paul told us to examine your salvation and see if you be of the faith. He told us to do that. To make sure that what we have is real and not something fake that Satan has given us a counterfeit. Trust me, church, Satan has a counterfeit for everything that God has something that's real. And the one thing he wants to do is destroy you and discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his number one goal. And as I said before, every salvation experience is different, but there are some key elements. I remember when I used to share Christ with people, that's what I do. I'd I'd walk up to somebody and say, hey, are you a sinner? Yeah. Want to go to hell? No. Want to go to heaven? Yeah. Well, say this prayer. Now you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, we're going to look at it. First of all, the first thing I want to look at under true biblical salvation is there is a true brokenness over one sin. There is true brokenness over one sin. Look at Isaiah 6, 5 with me. Isaiah 6, verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now I want you to leave that verse up there just for a second. I want you to look at those two words, woe and undone. The word woe, we, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, in the Hebrew there, but even in the Greek, it's the same word, woe, that was used in, in Revelation when it says, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. It means judgment. Isaiah, had God had allowed him to come into the throne room of God to see his sovereignty, to see his power, to see, uh, to see his glory. And when, when Isaiah is front, confronted with a holy God, the first thing he does is he falls to his knees and he says, Woe is me. He says, Judgment upon me, for I am undone. The word undone means destroy me. What is happening here is Isaiah is seeing his sinful condition before God's greatness. And there he says, Oh, judgment upon me. Oh, God, destroy me. I am unworthy to be in your presence. True brokenness is not an intellectual intellectual understanding of one's sin. It is a deep realization of the cost of one's sin and the death of God's Son. You see, I know right from wrong. My parents taught me right from wrong. Somebody were to say, you think, have you lied before? Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm broken over my lie. You know what the difference between, between knowing that a lie is wrong and being broken over it? It's because when I realize that that lie is what crucified the Son of God. Do you realize that even one little white lie, what we call a white lie, was enough to offend God's holiness that it would condemn us for all eternity, separated from God? People don't like to hear that, do they? People like to say, I'm a good person. Well, yeah, I'm a good person if I compare myself to other people. But when I compare myself to a holy God, I am not. The Bible says that I am wretched and depraved. It says that I am am lost and without hope. The Bible says there is none who seeks God. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. 
You see, true brokenness, and I'm not talking about, folks, I'm not talking about feelings here, okay? Because, you know what, you can stick your finger in a light socket and get a feeling, okay? It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an understanding of your sin and what it did to the Savior. The night I got saved, I'm telling you folks, that was a key element in my in, in that situation was that I saw myself for the religious man that I was. I was religious. I was a good little Baptist. And let me go ahead and say this. Baptist is my religion, but Jesus is my relationship. There's a big difference. I love the Baptist church and I love being here because they believe closest to what I believe doctrinally. I don't have a problem with that. But I'm not going to get to heaven and go to God and say, why should I let you into my heaven? Because I'm a Baptist. That doesn't get me into heaven. What gets me into heaven is that there was a time in my life where God came and He revealed my sin through the Holy Spirit and He broke me over my sin and in that moment I realized my lost condition and I cried out in desperation to God and God in His grace and His mercy gave me life. You see, when Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God, He sees just how unworthy and sinful he is. Peter experienced this after the denial of Jesus Christ. It said that he, when he ran away and whipped, um, whipped, wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Like I said, I'm not saying you got to cry, but you know what, folks? It's a heavy burden when one sees their sin before a holy God. It's a heavy burden. Paul experienced it on the road to Damascus. Jesus even says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You know, that when he was saying that in the King James, kick against the pricks, he was talking about the conviction that Paul was under. Many theologians believe it was because Paul was remembering what happened with Stephen and how Stephen responded. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen even said, I see the Son of Man. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Oh, Glory. You don't think that affected Paul or Saul at that time? But on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with God. And he saw his sin. I experienced it in St. George in August of 1991. But second of all, it's not just a brokenness over one sin. It's true transforming power. The word power in verse 5 here of 1 Thessalonians is the word deutimus. It means, uh, it's the word where we get the term dynamite from. It is explosive power. Paul speaks of this kind of power in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Let's read that together, okay? He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, I love that but right there, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Whoo! I remember what it was like to be a dead man. I remember what it was like to walk around as a religious man, trying to appease and please everybody under the sun, but never having a knowledge of who God was or His Son. Never having that knowledge that Jesus spoke of, that to know, that experiential knowledge. In fact, I didn't say this before, but I'm going to say it now. The word know there is the same word that is used when it says a man knows his wife intimately. Think about that. God wants us to have no inhibitions before Him. That we know Him and He knows us perfectly in every way of our life. And He wants us to know Him. That's the beauty of it. The God of the very universe wants to know you. And wants you to know Him. That is awesome. I tell you, if that doesn't get your fire going, wow. Get a lighter. Burn something. Get yourself excited. We have the opportunity to know the God of the universe. And the Bible tells us that God can hold the universe within the span of His hand. We measure our universe by light years. That's how fast uh, light travels in a year. 
And, we, and they believe that our universe is billions of years across. And God can hold it all in His hand. Yet He desires audience with you every day. Any moment that you can spare with Him. That's awesome. But you see, folks, a dead man cannot bring himself back to life, though, can he? Getting back to our, our verses here. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God is the one that made us alive. In Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Look at that word of. That word of. Some translations put it in there in. It's not the right word. It's the word of. You see, even the faith that we have, it was God who had to give us faith. Listen, if you've ever been to a funeral, and I'm not trying to, to, to make any kind of a joke about a funeral, but when you look at a casket and a body, they can't do anything for themselves, can they? They can't talk back to you. They can't move their hands or legs. They can't breathe. They can't do nothing. Someone, for it to move, somebody would have to give it life. That's who we were before Christ. We were dead. But it is Christ who put His faith in us and put His life in us so that we could respond in faith to Him. You cannot encounter God and it not bring life and change you. Look, at when Paul was writing these verses, he talked about, he said, this is who you once were, but that's not who you are anymore. You're changed. You're different. He just said that in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm not living anymore. It's Christ who's living in me. And if Christ is living in me, then that's ought to be who is oozing out of me. Paul said in Philippians 1.20, he says, that whether in life or in death, my body would magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew where he had come from, but he knew that his life was in Christ and in Christ alone. And all he wanted people to see was Jesus when they looked at him. Is that your desire each day? Let me tell you something, folks. You cannot encounter God and it not change you. You cannot encounter God and it not change you. To give you a good example of this, Moses, when he was on the mountain, he asked God to look upon him. Not God look upon Moses, but Moses look upon God. And God told Moses, no, you cannot look upon me and live. You're a sinful man. If you were to look at me in my perfection and my holiness, it would kill you. So God gave Moses permission to look at him after he passed by. So Moses, in a sense, saw the, the afterglory, the, the backside of God. Now I want you to see what it did to Moses. In Exodus chapter 35, verses 29 through 35, we see a transformation to Moses' face. And I want to read these verses to you. And starting in verse 29, it says, Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation and returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had, com had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him being God. You see, folks, true salvation is the power of God through His Holy Spirit that reveals our lost condition and through that powerful moving, it transforms us. As we put our faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, it means to, when the word says believe, it means to believe into. It's not just an intellectual belief. It means I'm putting all my faith, all my trust, all that I am, total surrender into Jesus Christ and His work on the cross and His resurrection. In that moment, my life will be transformed. 
Paul used those, those terms all the time because he wanted people to understand you just don't come to Jesus and still act the same way. It's impossible to do that. To an extent, and let me say that, and I shouldn't say impossible because we can willfully choose to disobey God as Christians. But the thing is, immediately, something miraculous happens within us and transforms us. Listen, If you saw somebody dead come back to life, wouldn't you think that's pretty powerful? Well, that's what salvation is. That's why we call it the greatest miracle that you can see today as a lost sinner coming to Jesus Christ because their life is resurrected and they are now free from their sin to live a life for Christ. But look at what else it says in the last part of verse 5. Of 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Hopefully you still got your... Your, your, your finger in there somewhere. If I forgot to tell you, I apologize. But he says, Our gospel will not come to you in word only, but in power, the Holy Spirit. And the last part, much assurance. Much assurance. Or you could say, full assurance. Listen, you know if you had an encounter with God, don't you? If you experience God's salvation, you're going to know it. It's not something you're going to question. You're going to be like, well, no, I know. I, man, he just did something. Man, the night I got saved, I'll tell you what, I was like, I was like a chihuahua on acid. I, hey, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Man, God, me, i got to tell everybody what happened to me. I was so excited. I, and that, and honestly, you go back to Isaiah 6 and verse 8 when God says, Whom shall we send? Isaiah goes, Hey, here I am, send me. Because he had experienced God's salvation. There's an excitement when you come to Jesus Christ. There's a change when you come to Jesus Christ. There is full assurance that you have been changed and made a child of God. You know who your daddy is. You ever heard that term, who's your daddy? I know who my daddy is. Chase, go ahead and put it up, buddy. Look at this picture. And I want you to think about something. If you saw the two of us walking down the road, what would you say? That's my daddy. Now, that's my two sisters giving him a kiss on the cheek. And uh, that was on a cruise we went on. And, uh, and uh, I took that picture a little bit later in life um, at my sister's house. But when you compare me and my father, there is no doubt who I belong to. I am Jerry Wilson's son. There's no doubt. I mean, I look. And Larry, if you all don't know, Larry used to work with my dad at Piggly Wiggly. My dad was a butcher by trade, and he was a supervisor for that company. But there's no doubt that Jerry Wilson is my father. But you know what? There's no doubt in my heart because I was raised by him. I lived in his house from day one. I don't remember a time that this man wasn't my father. I also know that he's my father because I carry his DNA. Look, he landed all over my face. I can't say I'm proud of that fact. I'm joking. I love my father. You know, it's funny, my dad used to call me and he first thing he'd say, hey, uglier than me. I was like, I was like, Dad, I look just like you, man. Look just like you. Well, you know what, folks? Just as much as I look like Jerry Wilson and he's my father, and I loved my father. He's one of my heroes of the faith. I am more thankful that I know that God is my father. I carry His DNA. The blood has been applied to me and I am a child of the living God and I know it. You don't have to convince me. Have I gone through times of doubt? Oh, yes. But you know what brings doubt when I'm living in sin? When I'm living in sin, when I'm choosing to willfully disobey, because let me me help you something here, church. After you're born again, you don't have to sin. You choose to sin. You know how I know that? Because Paul said it. He says, O wretched man that I am, trapped in this body of flesh. He says, and in another part he says, For when I know to do right, I choose to do wrong. Why do you say choose? Because once the Spirit lives within you, you have a power to say no to sin that you didn't have before. Your nature before was to walk by the lust of your flesh, as Paul said in Ephesians. It was your desire to do things that are sinful because that was your nature. But when Christ comes in, you get a new nature. The old man passes away and a new man is born, Paul talked about many times. Have you been born again? Are you new in Christ? Are you the same old person you've always been? Have you ever had an encounter with God that it changed your life? Now very quickly, we're going to finish up here. 
I promise I'm going to do the best I can to go as fast as I can here. What are the true marks of a changed life? You see, Jesus called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? It means it looks really nice on the outside, but it's got a rotten corpse on the inside. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? I mean, when you think about that, Jesus was looking at the, pe- the guys that were supposed to be leading the people religiously and, and, in the, and, 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 and having a relationship with God and so forth. And God, Jesus looked at him and said, you're whitewashed tombs. Oh, you look good on the outside, but in your heart, you're rotten to the core. You see, there's a lot of people that know how to play the Christian game. But when they leave and they go into the world, it's a whole different story. They can come to church on Sunday morning and they can say, they can say, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love these things. But as soon as they go out the doors, if something changes, they go back to who they really are. You see, a born-again believer doesn't go back. He goes forward. We follow Christ. Follow Christ means there's an action involved. I must follow His example. So what are the true marks of a person who's been changed by God? Well, I can tell you this. One of the, one of the, one of the, and I'm going to use my personal testimony here, and, and I think the Word backs up my personal testimony. One of the first things was, I fell in love with God's Word. I fell in love with God's Word. It wasn't just another book to me. Now listen, y'all, I grew up in a Christian home. I had a mother that was probably smarter than 90% of the theologians out there today. She studied the Word of God four hours a day, at least. And she studied it intimately and thoroughly because she wanted to know the God who saved her. And she taught that to me, but I still missed it. Here's a statement for you. God's never had a grandchild. You know what I mean by that? You don't get to heaven on your mom and daddy's faith. You've got to believe it because you believe it. That's one thing I tell my sons. I never once ask my kids, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? First of all, that's not a biblical statement because we don't ask Jesus in our heart. We repent of our sin and we call for salvation from God to redeem us and to save us from the power and presence or the power and the penalty of sin. Now the heart is important because when God comes into your life through the Holy Spirit, He changes your heart. Because what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Well, hopefully, you're putting the Word of God into your mind and your heart so that what comes out is the Word of God. Every true believer will have a desire for God's Word. Now, I used to study the Word of God. I used to know it from what my parents told me. And every aspect of knowledge I got because somebody taught me. It wasn't until I was born again that the Spirit of God began to be my teacher. And oh, what a teacher. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, I'll send the Comforter and he will teach you the things that I have taught you. The Spirit became my teacher. Psalm 1, verses 2 through 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Listen, the psalmist was telling us, you need to not just read the Word and study the Word, but you need to meditate on the Word. You know what meditate means? It means chew on it. It means think about everything that you've read and say, God, how does this apply to my life? And help me to apply it so that I can live a life that's pleasing to you. Every born-again believer will have that desire. I have no doubt about that. Because God loves His Word. And if God loves His Word, guess what? He's going to put that desire on you because the Holy Spirit lives within you. You have to have a desire for it. If you have no desire for God's Word, you might want to examine yourself this morning. I hear people say, well, I don't get fed at that church. You know why? Because you're not feeding yourself at home. You've got to feed at home. If you only I, Let me scare you a little bit. What if I challenged you today, or, or told you you had to do this today, that today when you go home, you only, or this week when, while you're at home, you only get to eat as many times as you read God's Word this week? Some people, I'd starve to death. I'm not saying that's you. Hopefully it's not. I'm being a little facetious about that. But let's get real, folks. If we, ate, if we ate food as much as we ate the Word of God, how sickly would we be or how healthy would we be? I've always said, hey, if, you got, if, you, if, you've got, if you eat three meals a day, I always say a half an hour a meal, that means you ought to be an hour and a half a day in the Word. That's how often you ought to be in the Word. An hour and a half, I ain't got that much time. See how much time you sit down and watch TV and do other things. Trust me, you have time. Trust me, I know you do. I've got four boys that play sports and everything else, and I know that I can spend an hour and a half in the Bible with God a day. I don't always do it. 
But you know what? When I don't do it, you know what happens? I get convicted. That's another test. If you're a child of God, God's going to convict you when you're not living right. He's going to tell you, hey, you need to get right. And He uses the Word to do that. We also, secondly, will have a love for each other. What are the marks of salvation? And listen, I wish I could go through all the fruits of the Spirit. We just don't have time. I know I'm already getting close to time if I'm not already past. But we, all, we will have a love for each other. Jesus even said that. You remember what He says? They will know you're my disciples by what? Y'all know it. Come on. Come on. Your love, right? Your love for each other. Do you love God's people? I didn't say, do you like God's people? I said, do you love God's people? Sometimes we don't like each other, do we? Sometimes that's going to happen. Personalities clash. You get two type A class in that personalities in a room. These are people who are, are strong and independent and, and are leaders. and make You put two of those in a room, you're going to have some clashing going on. Okay? It's not that they don't like each other. It's just that happens. But you know what? We can love each other. And we work through those moments. Okay? Listen to, listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians, Colossians 1.4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. How much do you love your brothers and sisters? How often do you pray for one another? You know, if you really want to love someone, pray for them. You know, I found that some people that I consider my enemies, not in the church, but even but outside the church, lost folks, when I began to pray for them, something changed in me. I began to love them. And I found that when people irritate me sometimes in the church, and I know I irritate people in the church. Trust me, I know that. I'm not perfect. When I begin to pray for them, I begin to have a genuine love for them, and I care about their well-being. Paul told us to forbear one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity in the Spirit. That was in the book of Ephesians. I didn't get that verse to you. But what does it mean to endeavoring? Or what is it, first of all, forbear one another in love. You know what that means? Tolerate. Remember what Pastor talked about last week with forgiveness? I love that little poem he talked about how, you know, in heaven to dwell with the saints is, oh, that will be glory, but to dwell on earth is a whole different story. Forbearing one another in love means, you know what? Yeah, sometimes you irritate me. Sometimes you just make me want to just... But you know what? Because you're my brother or sister in Christ... I'm going to love you and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you. And if, you're, if you are in sin, I'm going to humbly come and tell you, brother, you need to get this right in your life. Or sister, you need to get this right. There's nothing wrong. You're not judging somebody by doing that. If the Word of God has already called something wrong, it's already judged. So don't worry, Christian. You have the right to say that's wrong. Because you're God's messenger. But when you do say it, do it in a spirit of love and gentleness and meekness and kindness. That's why Jesus said, take the plank out of your eye before you take the speck out of there. He said, make sure that you understand you're a sinner too when you go to call somebody out on their sin. Trust me, I had somebody do that to me one time. And they were right, I was in sin. I had a, I didn't have no speck, I had a plank in my eye. And a lady came to me in, in humility and gentleness. She said, something's going on and you can't. I don't know what it is, but I know it's not of God. And she says, I love you. I'm praying. Man, you're talking about breaking my heart. You mean I wasn't exemplifying Christ? But she was right. And God used that to change me, to get me out of some things that I needed to get out. But let me tell you something, church. The worst thing you can do is not go to your brother, but gossip about your brother. Gossip is the number one killer of the unity of the body of Christ. It is, it is one of Satan's greatest tools in the church today to kill. What did your parents tell you growing up? If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. If you didn't hear that, I'm not going to say you're lucky. But I heard that so many times. I remember my brother one time, my, my, mom, my brother was being mean to me, and my, my mom said, Keith, quit being, ugly to you, or quit being ugly. And I said, Mom, he can't help it. Now, he was being ugly, but I was being uglier by calling him ugly, wasn't I? You see, folks, go to your brother or sister and make it right. Not to the church. It's not for everybody else out here to know what the problem is. you got a problem, you go to them alone. Matthew 18 says that. Go to them alone. And if you gain your brother or sister, 
rejoice in God that you've gained them. But we like to get on the phone. You know what some people have for lunch on Sunday afternoon? Roast. Roast preacher. <laughs> I'm being a little joking, but how many people talk bad about the preacher behind it? Man, I don't that preacher, man, that message, or that this or that. Or they talk about somebody. Do you see such and such? If I were to ask you who's the worst sinner in this, in this room today? And we ought to be putting both fingers here. We so quickly want to hurt instead of to heal. And that's not of God. Let me ask you something, church. Do you have a genuine love for, for God's people? Our desire will be to come to church to be with our brethren as often as we can. Francois Fenelon was the court preacher of King Louis XIV in France of the 17th century. One Sunday when the king and his attendants arrived at the chapel for a regular service, no one else was there but the preacher. So King Louis demanded, What does this mean? Well, Fenelon replied, I had published that you would not come to church today in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. I know I'm preaching to the choir today. You're here. Thank you for coming. If you knew that pastor wasn't going to be here, thank you for coming and supporting me. I appreciate that. But you know, let's get real, folks. Sometimes we're, our love isn't genuine. Our love is a self-love. All we care about is ourself. We don't care about others. We don't care if we hurt somebody's feelings. As long as I get what I want and it's my way, that is not the Spirit of God. That is not the spirit of love that the Bible speaks of. The word love is agape love. It's unconditional love. It means no matter what, I'm going to love you and I'm going to do everything I can to serve you. Christ gave up all that He had in heaven to serve us. Why do we not have the same attitude in the church today? Maybe it's because we don't have the Spirit of God living within us. Because the Spirit says, I want to serve now, folks, understand, this doesn't mean we don't make mistakes at times, okay? But if, you're, if your life as a portrait as a whole is that you don't have love for your brethren, I would seriously examine myself and see if I be of the faith. Lastly, we will have a love for the lost. We will have a love for the lost. The one most defining attribute for a changed life that has been changed by the power of God where we will desire to see others changed. Paul's love for the lost was one of the most passionate desires I've ever seen. Read Romans 9, 3, and I'm... All right, here we go. For I could wish I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. You know what Paul was saying there? He was saying, I almost wish myself in hell that my brethren would be saved. How's your burden today? Do you even think about the lost when you walk out those doors? Because really the church, yes, this can be evangelistic, be used evangelistically, but listen, the church was not meant to be evangelistic as much as it was to edify the saints. That means to build you up, to equip you for the work of the ministry, to go out and to reach those who are lost. That is our greatest command of God. That's why when we were saved, we're left here. And if you have no desire for that, Chuck Lawless, Vice President and Dean of Graduate Studies at Southeastern Seminary, said this, Christians who don't evangelize have not genuinely turned from their sin to trust Christ. Charles Spurgeon even said it, If you have no desire to reach others with the gospel of Christ, you are not born again. And you know what? I really do agree with them. Because how can you say you love God and know God, but yet you don't love the things that He loves? And what's the number one thing He loves? The lost. He cares. That's why He sent His Son to die. We should have that same love. When's the last time you wept over the lost that you know? When's the last time you shared your faith? Oh, that's not my personality. That's not me. Well, let me tell you something. That's not an excuse. Because you know why? Acts eight says, But you shall receive power... When the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Not if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your personality fits, or if you're not scared, or if you have all, don't have enough Bible knowledge. Those excuses are out the door, because the power of the Holy Spirit is what witnesses through us. We have no excuse not to share our faith. Yes, there are times of fear. Yes, there are times that it's scary to do so. But that's when we go to the Holy Spirit of God and say, Give me power, Holy Spirit. Take away this fear and give me a boldness, as Paul prayed, to speak the gospel. You see, we're going to have a love for the lost. We will bear the marks of the fruit of the Spirit. 
Paul says in Galatians 5, 22, 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You see, I only talked about love. I See how long I could have gone today? Why do we call it the fruit of the Spirit? It's because the Spirit produces it. We can't. It's not called the fruit of the Christian because I can't conjure it up in my life. It is a spiritual endowment that comes with true biblical salvation. Automatically, the fruits of the Spirit are are born in my life. Let me ask you something. When you look at that list, are any of those things in your life? If not, hmm, I'd be thinking. Have they ever been in your life? I'd really be thinking. Listen, once again, sin can, can, can hinder these things through us. But once again, you'll be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Are you convicted? Let me ask you a few final questions. Dear sir or ma'am, did your life change when you came to know Jesus Christ? Are you still living the same life you've always lived? I don't care if you grew up in church or not. Remember what he said. Let's go back to Matthew. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are people that were in church their whole life. Or these are people that served Christ. You can serve Christ and not know Christ. Listen, I know a whole lot about Abraham Lincoln. I can tell you things about his life, but I don't know him personally. But I can tell you only, and I can not only tell you things about Jesus' life, but I can tell you what kind of God he is. I can tell you what kind of Savior and Lord and Father he is because I know him. I experience him. Do you experience God on a daily basis? Is your salvation real today? Not just a moment in time in the past. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 13.5 again, Examine yourselves and see if you be of the faith. Dear, dear Christian, are you born again today? Only you can answer that question. If you were to die right now, let's just say something crazy happened and this building falls on every one of us and we all die. Be ashamed. I'd hate for that to happen. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that I know that I know I'd be in heaven with the Lord. Not because of religious experiences, not because of all these things, because you know God intimately and personally. You know Him as your Father. You, you've heard Him speak. Not the preacher speak. Not mom and dad. You've heard God's voice as He spoke to you. You've experienced the forgiveness and the weight of your sin being lifted. God is experiential. True salvation is experiential. It's not just intellectual thought. Where are you this morning? 